Hello, dearest patrons. This is the Bunga Cast Reading Club. This is the fifth edition of the 2022 series. We're recording this on Wednesday, the 25th of May. As you know, we always endeavor to record these on the last Wednesday of May. So that's when you should get your questions and comments in by. We hope you uh, have all had success in forming local reading clubs uh, where you've tried to. And if you haven't, again, get in touch with us uh, at info at bungacast.com or via uh, the Patreon. Um, so uh, this is the fifth one, and the, in fact, the penultimate one of the first chunk that we're doing, which accounts for the first six months of the year on emergency politics and control. Uh, so we started off this year, just to remind listeners, uh, with Carl Schmidt uh, and his discussions of sovereignty and exception. Uh, then we moved on to Giorgio Gambin, uh, looking at a book which was written about the politics of exception during the uh, war on terror, really during the kind of early years of the war on terror. Uh, and then we moved on to two different books on fear, which uh, were done in March and April, the first by Corey Robin and the second by Frank Freddy, presenting really quite different accounts of uh, the politics of fear and the culture of fear and its origins. And so this is the fifth one. We're talking about Foucault uh, and his uh, lectures, The Birth of Biopolitics from the late 70s. And then uh, next time, and I'll say this at the end as well, but next time we'll be talking about specifically, uh, I guess, what we could imagine to be the coming emergency politics around climate and the climate emergency. Um, so we'll be discussing that uh, next month at the end of May. Uh, but now I'm going to hand over to Philip, who will explain a little bit more about this reading. Thank you, Alexander. So this is, um, as Alex mentioned, the penultimate in a series which is focused on emergency politics. And hopefully by now, I mean, for our listeners, you know, I mean, given presumably they've all been alive and living conscious adults in the last few years, there'll be no need to, um, no need to justify the focus on um, trying to understand emergency politics. Um, and so with Foucault, there is kind of a very obvious connection, um, particularly with the politics of Corona, right? Foucault is, Foucault is the one who, or he was the one who kind of introduced this concept to biopolitics. And so given that during the Corona period, during the lockdown period, um, so much political life was organized around the imperatives of biological survival, um, a new kind of uh, type of public hygiene control and control, well, control and authority was justified on the basis of um, controlling, minimizing uh, the spread of the virus. And so on the that basis, the idea of biopolitics obviously merits thinking about um, and seeing how far it helps us to understand the dynamics of political power and control today. So that is of the title of the book that we're discussing, or some chapters from the book, The Birth of Biopolitics. Um, the interesting element of this also, I think, which also merits um, thinking about Foucault specifically, is that remarkably, he seems to have suffered a dip in interest and attention over the last few years. And I say that remarkable because any of anyone who has um, uh, been through university or graduate training of some kind um, in the last 20 years at all would be, you know, in social science will, I think, at least have heard of Foucault, or if not be extensively familiar with his work. He's been a tremendously influential thinker um, for the postmodern academy, essentially. So it's remarkable that in a time in which he would seem to be an obvious candidate 
um, for being for helping us to understand what happened. He's in fact enjoyed something of a regression in intellectual interest. Um, and I was particularly struck by this with a the recent um, call a call for papers I saw for the London Critical Theory Conference, which is one of these big annual jamborees for um, critical academics of all varieties. And there was a um, there was a panel organized around Foucault, which said about how biopolitics and idea Foucauldian ideas had essentially been bastardized or co-opted or could no longer be used effectively in a time in which um, in a time in which conspiracy theories had become so prevalent. And so it seemed very clear that here you had a case of the left kind of distancing themselves explicitly rather than only implicitly from a theorist who has been front and center of the for the academic left over the last um, few decades. So that's also, I think, you know, in that context, I think it's also worth revisiting Foucault. What is it that embarrasses everyone on the left so much about him at the moment? Why are they embarrassed to use him um, in order to understand the pandemic? And also, is there anything worth, you know, is there anything there worth um, uh, taking with us, I suppose? So, um, before we do that, I would, before we get into that book specifically, I was just curious, given the fact that both Alex and George, both obviously being overeducated PMC, um, I'm sure they were exposed to Foucault during their um, academic education. And I'd be curious to hear about how Foucault is introduced to them, um, how they, well, how you guys responded to um, Foucault as undergraduates, postgraduates, whatever, and if your views of him have changed over time in respect to changes in your political outlooks. Well, I mean, I, funnily enough, I managed to swerve Foucault quite a bit. I mean, I did international relations at undergrad, and though Foucault came about, it was a little bit like, I'm not sure how this connects to the thing that I'm interested in studying. So I, you know, whatever, didn't do the reading that week or didn't do the course um, that was dedicated to kind of Foucauldian approaches or whatever. Um, but it's funny that you mentioned, you know, conspiracy theories there, because my take, I guess, always on what Foucault was, you know, as an undergrad or whatever, in my early 20s, was precisely that idea that, you know, any form of knowledge is about power behind it, that there's no possibility of kind of independent knowledge, and that all these institutions that exist are there just to kind of dominate and crush you. Right, which is very much the kind of um, you know nucleus behind uh, conspiracy theorizing, popularly known, which is um, as we'll come to discuss indeed uh, in the next uh, section of the reading club, is also you know is kind of a panic about agency, the feeling that like everywhere is trying to dominate you and control you, um, and that the possibilities for you know freedom or independent thought or whatever are just kind of impossible because everyone's being shaped and molded, and that was kind of my. Um, you know, uh, understanding Foucault and why I was kind of dismissive of it because it didn't seem to kind of fit to the reality that I saw. It's a little bit like, oh, okay, yeah, maybe there's a little bit of that, but come on, you know. <laughs> so yeah. I know, I know, George, you went to Nuffield where they don't actually teach you interesting things. So did you ever actually, did you ever actually encounter Foucault? Um, I mean, I, I certainly probably threw around the word governmentality quite liberally as an undergraduate <laughs> in an attempt to sound um, 
to sound smart and it maybe it worked maybe it didn't um but no, i do remember being very impressed by the idea of the panopticon or, or foucault's analysis of bentham's prism where you know i'm sure li- listeners know you know knows very well but you got the the guard the guard in the, the middle can see into all the cells but actually foucault's very uh, perceptively realize well you know the key thing is that you can't see if the guard is there or not so you act as if you're being surveilled the whole time and I just thought yeah that's there's, there's something to that I mean I would say my any enthusiasm that I had probably for Foucault was probably quite considerably dampened by meeting self-styled Foucauldians um, as yeah, a graduate student and they because I think they found it hard to sort of say anything or it seemed to me like it wasn't a, a, a positive program for kind of social science it was all all like well you know these terms which everybody else uses you can't use them because they have all of these you know archaeologies of knowledge and you know knowledge power and all that sort of thing that Alex was talking about so it seemed actually like I mean maybe this gave them some sort of some cachet or or kind of coolness but it just seemed to me like well are you actually going to do any research or are you going to talk about how difficult and or impossible it is to do any research <laughs> using any any words? So, yeah, I mean, I guess my you know, probably a bit more complicated than that. But I think the, the there are a lot of Foucauldians. I mean, you know, he was number one in, in the charts of citations for absolutely ages. So, I mean, and that that level of citation is always going to lead to um, deformities of, of, of various sorts in, in the thought. But good to return to the actual primary text. As, as it were. Well, I, I think yeah. the one the one defensible Foucauldianism I've come to realize uh, certainly is the turtleneck, bold, and glasses look, uh, which I would defend to the <laughs> You hill. don't so use, you don't I, use I'm a Foucauldian. I'm a Foucauldian on cold winter days. You don't use turtlenecks though. So you're, I, so you're I, the opposite. You're the opposite of a fair weather Foucauldian. You're yes, a, I'm a, a cold, cold weather Foucauldian. I'm a cold weather Foucauldian, exactly. Yeah. He also did some other things you probably should No, I did. Yeah, let's not, not that. I don't do that. Yeah, <laughs> not anymore. No, oh. <laughs> move past that. Look, look how embarrassed you are to quickly get away from it. Mm, that's some homophobia there. We'll have to come back to it some later point, Alex. Okay. Yeah, anyway, more like anyway. Yeah. Anyway, um, pedophobia. What? Anyway, that makes no sense. But never mind. The point. So George picks up the point. I mean, this is one of the reasons Foucault would seem to be the um, archetypal theorist of the moment. Again, is also because one of his major contentions was that power had to be understood in different institutional contexts, so not just in terms of the exercise of power by um, the state, or centralized kind of sources of power such as the state, um, but also understood in all sorts of different contexts, and not only factories such as as would be, um, you know, kind of uh, a kind of a Marxist, a Marxist maneuver, but also in terms of the organization of prisons, the organizations of um, hospitals, the organizations of schools, um, all the different ways in which um, society was regimented, controlled, made hierarchical, manipulable, controllable, knowable, and all these other kind of um, things that power uh, achieves in the Foucauldian framework. And what's interesting about this book, or one of the many interesting things about it, um, I mean, so I have to say, like, I mean, so these series of lectures that were delivered at the Collège de France, which is where Foucault um, uh, ended up as a professor, they've only relatively recently been um, published in English. So his other works, more books rather than lecture series, have been available in English for a very long time and on the basis of his theoretical reputation in the academy. 
And I was, I have to say, I was very taken. I mean, with not only the um, fluency and cogency of the lectures, in many ways better to read than his actual kind of written books, but also how perceptive they were and how insightful and perspicacious in the context that he was writing, which is the 70s or delivering these lectures, seven, the 70s and 80s. And so much of what he's accounting for there in France, and like I say, not delivered in English, um, we can still see the long kind of overhang of it in terms of particular kinds of um, social behaviors, um, as well as uh, ideological outlooks right into the present. And that was, I found that remarkable. There's other kind of points on, on past, which he makes kind of on passant, which I think are also, you know, kind of genuinely fascinating and intriguing and worth thinking about more. For instance, making the point that the Nazis, the Nazi party, affected the withering away of the state in Germany mm. um, by establishing a separate center of power to existing state authority, which I don't think is right, but is kind of, um, you know, such a kind of a fascinating claim that it does merit thinking about and, more. And, and just to jump, on, just to jump in on that. In what it, the withering of the way of the state means. Yeah. Well, and just to jump in on that, I mean, that's relevant to the very first reading we did this year of Carl Schmitt. And indeed, in some ways, Carl Schmitt's um, breaking away from the Nazi party or to a certain extent, his regret um, of, for, for joining. It's not exa exactly entirely true, but um, how that, well, you know, that. but the basic idea yeah, it was that... Uh... That he that that basically the Nazis abandoned the state and the party came to be yeah. the kind of dominant figure and the kind of gangsterism associated with it and so on. And that was, I mean, that was one of the reasons that his opponents also, who had no reason, such as Otto Kirchheimer, who was a Weimar era legal theorist, who had no reason. I mean, I might might have mentioned this at the time, but who had no reason to be friendly towards Schmidt because they were implacably opposed to each other. But he made the point. And that this is what mean, meant that Schmidt wasn't really a Nazi because he was too dedicated to state power, whereas the Nazis were suspicious and hostile of it because they were more focused on the party. And the state elites were of a very different kind of breed to these thuggish brown shirts who came out of the gutter. Anyway, that aside, the idea that the Nazis oversaw a withering away of the state, I don't think it's right. But it's kind of an intriguing claim for anybody who's interested in the withering away of the state. Um, and then the other point, you know, he says about kind of um, neoliberalism itself is a diaspora politics. It's a politics of exile and it mirrors the socialist and anarchist politics of the 19th century. So the same way that Bakunin, Marx, um, uh, you know, Garibaldi, Mazzini, all of these, um, theirs was a politics of exile in the 19th century. This was mirrored by those who had become neoliberals in the 20th century. Most obvious, most famously, notoriously, um, the Austrian neoliberal Hayek, who is um, uh, who uh, didn't return to Austria after the Nazis and exited in the 1930s, and would kind of um, spend his time between uh, Britain, America, before he eventually returned to Germany. Anyway, the point is von Hayek. There are many... Don't don't declass him. It's uh, von Hayek. Many interesting. I know. I know those vons are very important to Eurotrash, like you, Alex. My apologies. Um, so anyway, Friedrich von Hayek. Is that okay? Is that acceptable, Alex? No, it just you said Hayek rather than von Hayek, and then it's oh my like, god, you know, okay, yeah. fine. You make, him, you make him merely bourgeois rather than aristocratic in, in doing so. You know. So anyway, so the point being, there are many interesting, you know, kind of asides which make it 
um, a good read, you know, and there are many things we won't be able to talk about because what I do want to focus on is biopolitics for obvious reasons that I've already kind of outlined. So, um, however, it's a lecture series entitled Bio, about biopolitics, but ends up being about neoliberalism. And it's that which is in itself interesting and worth thinking through. Now, for biopolitics, what Foucault meant by that was a politics that was focused on the level of the population. Um, and when kind of state power and authority becomes concerned with questions of um, public hygiene, of um, kind of rates of reproduction, of mortality, natality, all of these kinds of um, basic questions of, uh, of life, essentially. This is what he understood by biopolitics, and it comes into being with the rise of state authority over the 18th and 19th centuries and is kind of intertwined with the rise of liberalism. So that's what he understands by biopolitics in terms of its intellectual origins. But he ends up talking a lot about neoliberalism and he makes a claim about the difference between classical and neoliberalism. And I just wanted to talk a bit about that, about the changed historical context and the different accounts of the state um, between the two. So over to you guys. Tell us about the differences between classical and neoliberalism, at least according to Foucault. Well, I, I guess I, I wanted to pick up on one of your earlier points first, which is, <clears throat> yeah, it's interesting because it, the, the book is called The Birth of Biopolitics. And essentially the the chapters, i.e. the lectures that, that we're looking at today, you know, he kind of overruns. Like this is the, the point. He, he's trying to like set up what you need to know in order to understand biopolitics and just I don't know, it's kind of, it reminds me of Tristram Shandy, like this idea that he's trying to describe this birth, but keeps on getting digressed, there's digressions and it's, you know, just he can't, he can't get to the point. Um, and that is, you know, I think that's interesting in and of itself that he, he takes, <laughs> he talks about neoliberalism when he's, when he's, his uh, sensible subject is, um, is biopolitics. But yeah, I mean, the, the, the chapters sort of set up this, um, this German versus American um, distinction. That's, that's really the, yeah, it's but before, before we get to that, so what are the differences between classical and neoliberalism? Well, I mean, it, it's the, the idea is basically that, you know, the classical liberalism sought to, sought, you know, wanted the market basically to be the delimitation of politics, of government, uh, and that they would inhabit separate spheres and that, you know, what uh, could be called like the life world or things basically beyond, beyond the market um, are left to their own devices or are governed by their own kind of forms or ideas, whereas, you know, the market is just the market and it's all about exchange, right? Um, whereas neoliberalism, uh, and, and Foucault has a kind of pithy way of saying this, is that whereas previously classical liberalism was about laissez-faire, basically that the state should not intervene and everything should leave room for the market to, you know, work according to its own self-equilibrating mechanisms, um, the, the, the neoliberal period is actually ne pas laissez-faire, you know, basically do not let, do not let let you know let be um because there needs to be an active pushing against any other governmental logic anywhere um rather than kind of government and market inhabiting delimited spheres um, yeah the market needs to be made rather than the, yes simply allowed for and and, um, and and in fact and just to, to go a little bit further is this idea because i referred to um exchange um that exchange no longer becomes a central idea but competition and competition then is something that can be encouraged and stimulated yeah, so we'll come to that yeah because that's a bit more on um that comes a bit more later on from this basic thing so here 
the bunga daddy has to keep sure make sure his students are kept in check and that we stick to like the ordained plan of um how we were going to let this discussion yeah, but unfold. it might be more interesting not to do that but go on this is the lib this isn't the liberal art of gov government this is the liberal art of <laughs> podcasting Damn, absolutely that's right so um on that basic point that alex said so you know from the absolute in the context of the absolutist state the early liberals um proto-liberals physiocrats and so on they're looking for ways to hedge in state power and to let kind of civil society emerge in which you'll have the spontaneous um forces of the market of self-interest to be able to assert themselves and that obviously is very different um in the interwar period the first half of the 20th century when neoliberalism is developing and so rather they see that the market has to be built and there are different approaches to how the market should be built the main kind of difference that Foucault draws out in this lecture series is between German or Ordo and US neoliberalism or what he sometimes calls Zanico liberalism um, but are there any I mean do you guys think there is any kind of meaningful or significant other points you could make that Foucault doesn't kind of identify in terms of the differences between classical and neoliberalism yeah I mean there are there are loads I mean I guess it depends <laughs> you know many books have been written on this so it's enlighten us enlighten us hold him into a... no i think i think what is useful though instead of this because he's not the sort of thinker who's like who who produces tables i mean you you, you you've got to love a, a, a tabular <sighs> systematic oh, thinker of that time. sort but he's very Jesus french Christ. in this way so but then you know, he uses words most normal people use words George. Tables are uh, composed of words. Tables in, are in dialectical. I, I think, you know, as a. That's as absolutely a not true. Or a Thesis, antithesis, yeah. synthesis. You know, it's one of the three, it's one of the three most important columns. Anyway, oh my God. the point that I would make here is that it, that's not, he's not trying to say here is like, here are the systematic differences between classical and neoliberalism. But instead what he says is, and which I think is completely correct, is that neoliberalism was a project and it was at least partly recognized yeah. as, as such. So it was a, you know, yeah. it's a political, so therefore the context and the national um, uh, context of of the rise of different neoliberal projects is is really important, and I think I think I was kind of convinced by that to a certain extent because it is you, you do want to tell the, the 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 grand global story, but you're also recognizing that there is this political aspect to it, and this is how it was developed, and this is what it was trying to achieve. That does add, you know, that does add a really important element to the understanding of how you move from classical to neoliberalism. Yeah, I have to say, so I mean, I was very taken with. Um, there are, I think there are limits and weaknesses to casting everything in terms of a strategy and a project, which is Foucault's tendency as a thinker. But I have to say I was quite taken with his political insight in this, particularly, for instance, when he talks about um, German neoliberalism, that it is precisely, and he talks, and it's it's a very kind of, you know, um, interesting, specific kind of slice of it of history is when in the western occupied zones of germany they were it was neoliberals who were fighting to lift all the price regulations um as part of kind of uh, restoring normal life in the aftermath of the second world war but also they were looking for new sources of state authority um and it was so the point that foucault makes it was in the absence of the state because germany 
it was occupied, you know, so it fell under kind of the control of another state. There wasn't any German state to speak of, no kind of authorized legal, legally constituted German state. It was in the absence of the state that they started kind of carving out what would become neoliberalism in this battle with the allied occupation authorities over price controls. Um, and I thought, you know, so his, like you say, George, his attention to them as political projects, I think is really insightful and important. And he makes, I mean, he makes the really, and he makes the case that it was in this context that they decided that the market had to be the basis rather than kind of the market and government being separate spheres. Rather, it was there that they decided as a way of kind of wiping the slate clean also of the Nazi past and everything that was inherited from the old German state. They decided that the market would be the basis of state authority as such in the new Germany. And that this yeah, and was vital. To, yeah, go on. Well, no, it's funny that there's, and I know we'll come to this in a second, but it's funny that that has a sort of an analog in the United States where there's, it's also not a pre-existing absolutist or, you know, kind of post-absolutist state, which needs to be pushed back, but it's also a place where it's kind of market first. It's a market society before it is anything else. Um, and we can say that probably yeah, about, a lot, sure about world, a lot of the new world. Well, I'm okay. not sure about Maybe that. we can come back to that when we, when we come back to the, to the, uh, Distinctions I think between the in two. The, I think in the context of the American Revolution, it's very different because they did think of themselves as, you know, kind of freeborn Englishmen who were claiming their rights. And it was in and it also did kind of claim some of the authority that came um, not only from the Glorious Revolution, but also from the revolution proper. But, but what I mean, but, but there's there's a you know, there's obviously a period of American history before the American Revolution. Um, and which is so it's, it's a colony. Yeah, but that's under the authority. Yeah, but it's under the it's part of England, you know, so they think of themselves as part of England and that they have rights as um, belong as uh, subjects of the English crowd. And so I think it's Alex is alluding to the 1619 project actually Phil, but don't, don't <laughs> <worry>. <laughs> I, I know I know he was indeed and I was alluding to a different a better and superior understanding of uh, revolutionary American politics. Anyway, I, I wasn't just for the record. It wasn't a reference to the 1619 project. Is there any? Like are there any? Um, I think George makes a good point. Is there anything else that we want to pick up on this point about the differences between classical and neoliberalism? I just, just, I mean, just to say, and maybe to recapitulate a point that you already made, but it's amazing that this is being said and you know written in 78, 79, and he's talking about neoliberalism yeah. already being the kind of mode of government everywhere across the yeah. West. Uh, and, and, you know, reading it, and if you hadn't read this before, but you've read, for example, things about neoliberalism, at least things which aren't totally stupid, which don't set it up in the kind of way that kind of the liberal left does in terms of market versus state, but understands neoliberalism as involving state activism, you see that it's all here, right? It's yeah, all here indeed, already yeah. in Foucault quite early on. Um, and to see again, yeah, this kind of active versus, to put it in, I guess, the simplest way, the active versus passive notion that classic liberalism is passive. It's uh, libertarian in, in a kind of true sense, whereas neoliberalism is very much not, which again, relates very much to the idea of it being a self-conscious project. Um, yeah, maybe you know, the don't use active and passive in the, the reference to Foucault. Yeah, and the, and the, physio <laughs> the physiocrats, of course, themselves, uh, you know, had a project, right? So it wouldn't be, it would be um, incorrect to say that, you know, classic liberals of various sorts didn't have a project. Um, Adam Smith, you know, had a project, but I don't think he was so self-conscious, perhaps. Um, oh, no, no, we didn't, we didn't say he did the state uh, or anything. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I don't think we were saying you didn't, but um, yeah. So like I, I mean, I have to say I was very struck by that, just how, um, how kind of clear sighted he was, particularly, I mean, if, you know, most people will date neoliberalism to Thatcher and Reagan who are elected at the start of the 1980s and these lecture series come at the end of the 1970s. Um, and so Foucault is also, you know, clearly very alert to what was coming, which I think is to his kind of intellectual credit as well as, you know, indicating he's a politically inside thinker in a way I think that perhaps doesn't come across so much in, you know, kind of uh, the text, the kind of more, not textbooks, but the kind of uh, scholarly works which are effectively treated as textbooks now. Anyway, um, uh, what is, uh, I guess, let's talk a bit more about, we kind of touched upon it, but let's talk about it a bit more. The differences between German Ordo and US neoliberalism, um, because I think it's, again, kind of important to understand these different strands in understanding what neoliberalism is. Yeah, I mean, this is this is the this is the time when uh, an astute note taker could could uh, create for themselves a, a table to aid understanding. And if they were to do something like this, I think the some of the <clears throat> uh, rows could be could talk about the central the different central aims that these two projects had, the different political concepts uh, context and some of the different key concepts. And I think what so just to take that that first like idea of like what is the central aim of these two different um, uh, national contexts of neoliberalism, so German and, and American, he, Foucault's understanding is that basically German neoliberalism is is an attempt to to refound um, economic freedom as the condition of the state's legitimacy, whereas American neoliberalism is an attempt to use uh, mar- concepts from the market economy or the economic grid, as he calls it, to decipher non-market relationships and phenomena. So I think those are, one is a sort of a mode of understanding that there is a reformation of the basis of the state's legitimacy. There's probably a lot more to it than that, but I thought that was a useful um, sort of way to, to, to begin to separate the two. Yeah, I agree. I think that really is. I think one bit which um, I don't know how central it is, but I just found it fascinating um, was this notion of, uh, well, to, to use a, a kind of dichotomy which we used before in discussing uh, Eva Luz's book um, on emotional capitalism at the end of last year, um, warm and cold, um, you know, cold being rational, calculating warm being um, relating perhaps to intimacy or to sympathy um, and other kind of feelings which aren't uh, purely kind of instrumentally rational. Um, which is that the, the German ordo liberals felt that they needed in some way, if you're going to turn every economic agent into an enterprise concerned with their own human capital and, you know, be an entrepreneur of the self, et cetera. That's the Americans. Well, okay. But, but that that's true. But I think there was still a sense that, that the alienation of, this market society of, of this uh, politics of society, uh, that alienation would have to be assuaged. And then they advanced. This so the Germans. Vital politique. So this, yeah. So this is what well, this is. So this was really, this is really important. And interesting. I thought, because so the, according to Foucault's in Foucault's recounting, anyway, the Germans or the order liberals were very sensitive to this. Um, and in their kind of outlook, you had to, there had to be, because competition would tend um, by its nature to lead to dissolution because you know every everything becomes kind of atomized and set against each other you need you needed countervailing effects um and so this is their you know they saw the need for social cohesion and they so their idea was the state um had to kind of um 
the economic freedom became not only the basis of the state's authority, but also that the state had to construct the market as well as the kind of countervailing aspects of the market. Whereas in the context of US neoliberalism, it was more that the market becomes the model for all kinds, for understanding and framing and organizing all kinds of um, human behavior. And so there's this different view of what the proper role of the state should be um, between German ordo and US neoliberalism. And, and, and I think that's a, it's a distinction, actually, at least in regard to, you know, whether you go, whether you have this sort of more radical, radically individualist American approach or, or this German one, which seeks to satisfy new and heightened needs for integration. Um, you can see that somehow playing out in really existing neoliberalism over the years and in different countries. Yeah, I, think, I mean, know? I think, yeah. Like, so, so, because I think often, because the, again, to refer back to the um, kind of crude understanding of neoliberalism of state versus market, which, you know, kind of left liberals will see it as a negative thing that there's too much market versus state. And uh, some, you know, dumb neoliberals who don't really understand uh, their, their, own, their own basis for their thought will see us as having not real neoliberalism because there's still too much state. Um, but, you know, from the perspective of the latter, they might look at for, at whatever, you know, how Britain manages its social policy, for example, and say, well, that's not properly libertarian, that's not neoliberal, because there's a lot of state intervention and, and an attempt by the state to create links between individual subjects and the state or whatever it might be right through its social policy. Uh, and that that's not truly neoliberal, but, you know, here we can see, well, you know, maybe there's an ordo liberal element to that. Just for example, I'm not sure it's correct to say ordo liberal, but I'm just trying to tease out kind of two different essences, which you can, which you mm. can kind of play with there. Yeah. I also really don't like the phrase ordo liberalism. It just sounds so ugly. Um, but that's an aesthetic point. The, That's yeah, helpful. As, Thank you, George. What I forgot to say, um, which I should have said, is that the, the the table that one may create could be based indeed on Foucault's own definition of what the neoliberal project looked like. And so he uses this in the German context and then kind of, which I, and I found the presentation of that probably a little bit clearer because that's his, his case, which I think then kind of goes onto the American as a, as a comparison. Um, but yeah, so first define the objective. And in the German case, this was to found the legitimacy of the state on the basis um, of a space of freedom for economic partners. Secondly, define adversaries. So this is a political context. And particularly, this was a critique of Nazi Nazism and then those theoretical tools extended to Keynesianism. And then third, develop concepts which allow you to, to kind of do the, do the political work, as it were. And in the German context, um, this was um, Gesellschaft Politik and uh, rationality. And in the American context, just to give the kind of comparison, as we said, sort of the central aim there is to use these market concepts to, or the economic grid to decipher everything, essentially, non-market relationships and phenomena. The adversary was Roosevelt's New Deal Keynesian policies in 33 to 34. And then the key concepts which come out of this, one is human capital. So the extension of that kind of economic analysis to, to, the non to a key non-economic domain. And another was crime. So, and this particularly, you know, I've read a few of these, these um, kind of neoliberal analyses of crime, and it's quite striking just sort of the way that this thing, which is not thought of as, as economic, you, you know, well, yes, you can apply rational choice theory, so they say, to these things, and the criminal subject is then a rational actor. So all that anthropology, all that sociology, throw that out the window, and so you replace discipline 
or replace kind of any understanding with just a cost benefit analysis. So, you know, even <laughs> redefining crime as, as that which uh, in doing the individual risks a penalty. So I think that's the that's the kind of way that he's he's setting it up that you should understand this as having an objective adversaries and then key concepts being generated in in context. So that it is actually helpful, but also proves the point that you don't need a table because you said it all out loud, George. So <laughs> I'm just reading from I, I, the table I, I that think... I wrote. I do think it's a valid point that goes well beyond Foucault, though. I think, you know, everyone's writing against someone and it's worth to always situate that in those contexts um, rather than just kind of some standalone shouting out into the void sort of thing. Um, like you know, podcasting. Often, huh? Well, no, but you're arguing against someone, you know, you're pushing back in a specific context against someone, um, you know, not necessarily making a definitive statement for all time, but specifically arguing against this guy you don't like, you know, Um so one um, one thing I can't remember, unfortunately, now who said it, um, I'm not sure if they're a listener or not, but this uh, person online on Twitter said um, it might have been Anton Jaeger or someone like Anton who said that the... Um... Poor, poor, if Anton is listening to this, you're unique. There is no one, no one like you. Uh... But someone said, like, you can't understand neoliberalism unless you understand that two thirds, something like two thirds of the intake of um, the University of Chicago Economics Department were Latin Americans. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I thought, you know, I remember being struck by that. And obviously, there's a very kind of infamous, notorious connection, which is with the uh, Chilean dictatorship of um, General Pinochet when he kicked out Salvador Allende in the early 70s, and then sought to, um, it was under economic um, advice of neoliberalism that kind of um, organized at least the initial kind of um, a framework of the policy responses of the Pinochet regime, but more importantly, provided the legitimating justification for what the Pinochet state was about, what it was trying to do in in um, mounting a military dictatorship. So I wanted to, uh, so off the back of that, I wanted to canvas um, our collective views. What other kind of variety, are there other kind of what we could call national varieties of neoliberalism? That are worth drawing out and i guess we could start specifically with british and brazilian if there's anything which is kind of a trope which is worth identifying which is separate from um these uh points that we've already made with reference to german and us i think there's a kind of historical element to this which and i forget who uh kind of coined this term but you know kind of roll back and roll out neoliberalism right so roll back is the first phase where you privatize deregulate and so on and roll out neoliberalism is where you start then introducing market or pseudo market mechanisms introducing competition to areas where they previously didn't exist um, so, you know, it's more kind of libertarian phase and then a kind of rollout phase, which conforms a little bit more to the Foucauldian understanding of neoliberalism. Um, and it's interesting, I think, at least in, you know, I think probably across Latin America and certainly the case in Brazil, there's always an element of feeling kind of 10, 20 years behind the rest of the world. And, you know, they're still kind of doing roll, <laughs> they're still doing rollback neoliberalism, right? They're still fighting as if there is a um, strong kind of national development state or communist movement that needs to be pushed back. Um, and so, you know, privatization and introducing competition is treated as a sort of novel idea 
that uh, that can be brought in um, when actually the fact is, is that for all that there might be some legacies of the national developmental state, it's all been kind of really uh, worn down. And in fact, there's never been very much of it because you didn't have the buildup, for example, of, um, of social democracy, of Keynesianism here. So, you know, it, it like to refer back to what George was saying in terms of the, the um, you know, the neoliberals having these concrete enemies to push against um, in Latin America, it seems and it's hard to avoid the conclusion that it is very nakedly a class project um, from above because, you know, it's pushing against its social democracy that never existed. So it seems so nakedly about the pursuit of, uh, of, of like ruling class interest. It's a, it's, a, it's a good question, though. It's a good question to pose. And I guess it's, I take, you know, what Alex is saying about the, the Latin American context or Brazilian context specifically, perhaps. But I think in some ways, in the British context, maybe the main difference is just that, again, that the enemy is different. And specifically, it was the working class or maybe like the, the spectre of trade union um, well, ism. Just the spectre, the real kind of reality of large organized trade unions. Yeah, but I mean, was there any kind of anything above and beyond that kind of economic freedom as a condition of the state's legitimacy and use of market economy to decipher non-market relationships? Was there anything that was that was added, <clears throat> like to British neoliberalism? The, the I mean, as as, a, as an absolutely well, there major, was Victorian values, thing. you know, which wasn't well, really it wasn't. It wasn't. I think. I mean, that was their attempt to compensate for the disintegrative effects. Um, and it yeah. was a very important part, you know, kind of the appeal to British nationhood on the part, particularly, I mean, around Thatcher's um, military victory in the Falklands um, was clearly kind of an attempt to um, compensate for that. And also, you know, and it didn't survive the kind of the solvent of the market. I mean, you know, so the Union Jack became what was, um, you know, when it's raised above Port Stanley by the Marines in 1983 is the symbol of a resurgent Britain that passed is kind of the thatcher project by the end of the thatcher project it's just like a you know little keech thing that you buy on your little piece of tourist tat outside of um the houses of parliament or buckingham palace or whatever. yeah and, and but you can see you can see a correlate to that also in the united states i mean that to a certain extent neoconservatism always follows maybe you could make a general statement that neoconservatism always follows neoliberalism precisely because you need something to compensate for those disintegrative effects and so in the u.s you know it was the christian right in the 90s and 2000s um you know particularly the evangelical movement um trying to provide some new basis for legitimacy yeah. and social integration yeah, so they both end up being each each other's kind of useful idiots, I suppose, to some degree. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, it would be interesting, I suppose, to hear from listeners if there are kind of other um, tropes in terms of the national varieties question um, that just, might be. Just, yeah, just quickly on this, though, one thing which doesn't really fit, I don't think, is that kind of hyper-rational actor approach. Like, as you say, it, it, is, it is more about, I don't know, class mobility and appealing to people's sense of yeah of nationality and i guess as you sort of said the values of, of hard work and and that's what makes this country great rather than kind of reducing down the individual to a kind of a purely rational actor but maybe as you know as alex said maybe that is you know that's part and parcel that you need that that neoconservative like um value store yeah, in order but, but to, it's worth yeah. it's worth it's setting an interesting up one because there's different there's because i think the kind of that treating individuals as if they're purely kind of calculating agents 
I think, you know, even though that isn't the way in which these projects are politically legitimated at the national level, it doesn't form policy in all sorts of important ways. The design of institutions, um, the design of kind of uh, redress, you know, this whole kind of complex system of um, ombudsmen, which developed in the course of the 90s. I mean, it was rolled out, I think, in the 90s um, in the UK, was kind of these in the place of kind of democratic citizenship, um, or um, the rights that had been extended under the welfare state model, you had people, um, citizens were kind of restyled as consumers, and you had these various regulatory agencies you could appeal to for redress if you'd been, you know, kind of uh, scammed or duped in the course of your, um, you know, um, kind of participation in the market. And so I think there, you know, I think in terms of the des design of institutions, it does yeah. treat plenty of people as if they're purely kind of um, calculating actors. Yeah. Um, whereas the political legitimation will invoke kind of, you know, like you say, um, hardworking kind of self-sufficient individuals in the context of national traditions and Victorian values in the case of um, in the case of Thatcherism, though that didn't work, you know, um, in the case of Thatcherism and in the US, perhaps, you know, evangelical politics perhaps had greater success. Um, I guess it's interesting in the context of the moment that evangelical politics seems to have been exhausted just when um, on the cusp of like what seems to be its greatest kind of belated victory, if um, as seems to be the case, the Supreme Court does indeed overturn um, Roe v. Wade. But without, I mean, we don't want to get kind of um, stuck on that for the moment. But um, I just wanted to come in with two, two points in relation to what you've just said, um, which are important. One which struck me reading this is that you know, you tend to think of uh, neoliberalism as consumerization and the, you know, the, the apex of the consumer society and so on. Um, and Foucault makes this great point that the kind of Sombartian critique um, around 1900 of this kind of flattening, standardized, homogenous society of consumers and flux of commodities is actually not neoliberalism because neoliberalism, first of all, is much more individualized and individualizing than, um, than this kind of much more sort of identical world and flattened world of standardized commodities, um, but more, but perhaps more importantly, that all consumption is in fact production. Because if you're an entrepreneur of the self, everyone is an enterprise. Then your consumption itself is for some other end. It's not just you know for satisfaction of immediate need. So you know, of course, if you're reading a book, you're not just consuming a book, but you are producing and adding to your um, human capital if it's useful. But of course, if you're reading you know something that's not useful, like Marx or whatever, then maybe you're not adding to your <laughs> your, your it's it's an inefficient it's an inefficient form of of uh, production. Um, because your inputs don't really produce very much. Um, yeah, so I think that, and this... The, so that's... The, that's an, okay, go, go respond to that and I'll make my second point. I always only to say the thing, the Sombart, you know, where he makes the case that the kind of um, this, what who became effectively a fascist, uh, some Werner von, von, sorry, Alex, I don't know, Werner Sombart. I don't think um, he's a Von, no. Anyway, going to Von, yeah. Sombart anyway kind of preempted so many of those tedious post-war critiques of consumer society such as Marcuse's. Anyway, I thought it was a yeah, good no. it was a good point by Foucault. Um, and uh, so the second point, and this refers to the sort of ombudsman question, which, you know, in Britain, especially kind of looking at kind of Blair, Blairite neoliberalism rather than Thatcherite neoliberalism, you know, you have privatized or private pro 
private public partnerships um, where you can choose your supplier of whatever, right? Um, or there's put the, um, you know public projects put out to tender. Um, but then of course, you know, because everybody's an, uh, is is an entrepreneur, everybody's a, a treated as an enterprise, um, an atomized enterprise. There are of course frictions um, that that emerge from that um, that need to be adjudicated. And this is why neoliberalism also means the juridification of society. And that's such an important point in this um, that I kind of reread that bit over <laughs> a couple of times because yeah. I think yeah. it's so essential. It's vital. Um, and it, you know, something that I've written about and thought about quite a bit is sort of anti-corruption politics and the whole notion of transparency, of course, is very much a... Um, it's very much a neoliberal project, and it's precisely because it tries to tackle any state business nexus, um, you know, and stop any rent seeking by political elite saying, hey, give me a little, you know, I'll give you this contract if you give me over a little bit on the side and so on. Um, but that anti-corruption politics always means normally means, you know, disempowering politicians and putting judges in charge because only judges um, can adjudicate. Now, that's one part of the story, it's, but but but, the, but what Foucault makes, that, but exactly what Foucault, the argument Foucault makes is it goes well beyond that, um, is that the kind of juridification applies not just kind of to the big things of um, public contracts or to uh, politicians' behavior, but to the kind of all areas of life where everything becomes a potential site for litigation. And that's so, so important. And just, just yeah. to finish, just to finish this point, which is that the idea that, um, you know, kind of the regulatory state, which is different from the kind of social democratic Keynesian state, which is the tax and spend state. So, right, the regulatory state, um, the idea that that's somehow not neoliberal um, is completely wrong because it is eminently, you know, essentially yeah. neoliberal. Um, and I even had this argument with someone on Twitter the other day, some guy who, I don't know, some blue tick person who was saying, you know, like, oh, there's all these regulations. This isn't really kind of the capitalist or something like that, as if that you could counterpose capitalism and the regulatory state. Now, of course, if we know, I mean, as Marxists treat capitalism as a social system, but even if you wanted to narrow down that claim just to neoliberalism, even uh, neoliberalism isn't, you know, Count, isn't counter to the regulatory state, but they go hand in hand. And the thing that links those is precisely this juridification of life. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say the element which I think is tied to that is um, it subverts its promise, I think, right? So yeah. if you imagine neoliberalism will be the kind of this um, kind of energetic, vibrant society of where the promise of individualism will be delivered, and you will have kind of greater opportunities, both in terms of wealth and outcome and so on. It comes at the same time with this kind of suffocating system of restraint, which is associated with litigiousness, uh, regulation, laws, um, all of that. Um, it just brings to mind, so I just want to make kind of one point about this, because I think it just embodies it so much is like, if you go to America, you know, and you think about the kind of the um, the kind of still the kind of popular image of America as, um, you know, this place of freedom, just how astonishingly kind of regulated and controlled it is as a society. So remember when I went to San Francisco, this was sometime before the pandemic, and I went to some park um, on a sunny day and it was um, I was sitting at the edges of the park on a bench um, and uh, there were lots of people smoking weed in the park. Um, but at the edges of the park or at the edges of the actual the green part of the park 
um, kind of where the pavement began, there were park wardens who I'd never seen. So they seemed to be like kind of authorized state officials. It wasn't like a private security company who were walking around kind of policing the edges of the park and getting people to move in if they were too close to the edges so that their um, marijuana smoke was kind of spilling over into the part of the park where you weren't allowed to smoke marijuana. And it was just this kind of astonishing, it captured to me, captured in my mind so much about America, that you had this kind of um, space of freedom, which was this kind of glorious kind of sun sunny park um, in this kind of fancy hipster part of San Francisco, but it was boxed in and, you know, required an army of um, kind of, uh, you know, these petty security guards to kind of police and regulate it. And the freedom to kind of just do what you want in this um, beautiful little park was kind of tightly restrained and controlled. And I think that's exactly what he gets to. So that kind of, he doesn't actually make the point explicit, but it seems to me an important one about well, how... He, he he doesn't make that that point explicitly but he does recognize particularly for german neoliberalism that the central contradiction is how e specifically economic freedom can both found and limit the state at the same time so he does i think he does recognize that there is a like that that promise that is often made in on behalf of neoliberalism of that kind of like untrammeled freedom no regulations you can you know you can smoke weed anywhere in the park at the edge or in the middle or whatever that all of those sorts of things is they're never really going to be able to be lived up to because you have to like you want to um have this as the cornerstone of the state's legitimacy that idea of economic freedom but it also has to limit the state in order to to allow that economic freedom to to be as untrammeled as possible so i think he he does recognize that there is something contradictory right in the that kind of initial like grounding of the state in economic freedom so this takes us before so i want to kind of obviously get into the question of biopolitics the lockdown and neoliberalism but before that i just want to quickly touch upon this point about um human capital so the American neoliberals in particular, um, and this is led by particular people like Gary Becker, the economist, Nobel Prize winning economist, um, leading to kind of understanding as this grid of rationality, as Alex said, to understand all kinds of human interactions in terms of essentially opportunity cost, cost benefit analyses. Um, and it's a, kind of, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating account that Foucault provides, but it's also an incredibly beguiling, um, account of human behavior and one that's difficult to shake off. So Foucault makes the point it's an important reframing of economics itself as a discipline because the original kind of understanding of economics was these kinds of um, sect, you know, big kind of um, social phenomena, abstract social phenomena, labor, capital, ownership, land, resources and factors of production, production processes, exchange processes, um, and it, with the shift towards understanding potentially all human behavior in terms of um, calculations of um, benefit, risk and cost, um, which is set about um, or initiated by the LSE economist, political economist Lionel Robbins, when he reframes economics as the study of um, decision making under conditions of scarcity, which potentially kind of opens up all kind of vistas of human life to being thought of in this way. 
and I was thinking about this because I mean, I suppose what's fascinating about it is like it's kind of like a mirror version of vulgar Marxism in a way, you know. So your vulgar Marxist will be like, um, you know, oh, you know, this per this is just this interest or this is just this material interest behind all sorts of kind of complicated um, political and social behavior and outcomes and organizations and so on. Um, and it's kind of a mirror version of that. It's very difficult to shake off because um, it's very difficult to deny the reality of, of interest as obviously as a basis for human behavior. Um, and obviously the importance of economic and material incentives in shaping people's behavior as well. Um, and anyone who denies it, you know, is immediately forced into kind of the um, position of being cast as if they're a naive idealist who um, kind of wants to hold on to romantic notions about what motivates people and refuses to accept the hard truth that people kind of are motivated by basic, you know, kind of access to basic resources and their material interests. Or, or that person is, uh, is sort of, it can be thrown back and, oh, so you think people are irrational. You think people are stupid. Oh, that's a bit patronizing. I mean, Indeed. it does have, it does have that, that, um, idea of putting rationality at the center of the human agent and that is a kind of a quote-unquote empowering perspective because it says well you know people are thinking all the time people are making decisions I mean obviously it has the limitation that it doesn't explain all that much human behavior very accurately and can't really predict very much at all but the and this is this is the rational choice theorists not the uh, not the vulgar Marxists who get probably 99 out of 100 things pretty much right i would say but um yeah i mean it's also quite unremitting as well because as you said it, it applies to any like any aspect of human life it you know it does reinforce the idea that you are kind of you are the economy like anything that you're doing any choice that you're making you know for example you should is is, is an economic one so for example you should limit your wardrobe as much as possible to save uh, on decision-making uh, energy and just to save on the time spent choosing between the different clothes that you have. And I mean, yeah, so it's quite a bleak, quite a bleak, yeah, Zuckerberg, quite a bleak the Zuckerberg vision model of, of fashion, um, yeah. aesthetic life. So luckily our listeners aren't, um, aren't required to see George during these, um, during these um, sessions, but he does in fact uh, live by this neoliberal model of wearing the same Silicon Valley issue kind of fashion of it's the same grey t-shirt every day, day in, day out, week on week, month on month, year on year. So he does know of what he speaks. I suppose the, I mean, you know, I mean, I, it's worth mentioning, I guess, also, I mean, so that model of rationality has being kind of chiseled away, if not entirely disintegrated in the context mm -hmm. of e the economics discipline at the moment, because it's behavioral economics, which is founded on the idea of um, irrationality. That is the basis of understanding, you know, which is kind of the, if not the dominant tendency, certainly the one with the most kind of energy and dynamism behind it in terms of well, economics I'm, as yeah. a discipline at the moment. I mean, I was just going to say on that just specifically is that it's not necessarily that irrationality is at the center, but that, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, well, I mean, well, in some way, it it's kind of is, I think, I mean, it, it, on one level, it's a necessary corrective, not to say it's the correct corrective, but, you know, because the neoliberal kind of neoclassical model is 
obviously an abstraction and it's not the way people actually behave. Um, it goes, well, actually, you know, but people have incomplete information and therefore need and or make choices which aren't in their best interest and therefore um, need to be, you know, their choice architecture needs to be consciously shaped by another actor, um, by an authority. But um, no, but that is neoclassical. So that is the neoclassical view, whereas the behavioral view is that we are systematically kind of misguided. Um, but it's, you know, by reference to irrational impulses. So I think, I mean, it does de kind of center the idea of a rational, of a rational agent and is the basis of, you know, the nudge theory. Um, and but that's what I meant about various... the choice architecture, precisely that, you know, people have incomplete information or make bad choices and therefore need them arranged. But that's, um, yeah, but that's slightly different from behavioral economics, I think. So, I mean, that the idea that people have incomplete information is, I, you know, that's acceptable that's in the neoclassical yeah. model. Yeah, but um, I think I think behavioral economics is is less like having an explicit model of of the the agent and the desires, beliefs, opportunities, and how these combine to make a decision, as saying, well, that's a black box. We don't really know. Like, what are the? How can you correlate like situations and outcomes and i.e. behaviors? Like, it's it's less about the psychological um, decision making mechanisms and more like yeah. you know you can correlate these these outcomes and these. Or you you, you uh, shift the situation and you get these different behaviors. So therefore, we're going to shift the situation this way. So it's I think I mean and that is in some ways is a um, a less ambitious project to the extent of not of not needing to require a fully worked out um, view of the of human agency. But maybe and it doesn't that's... it doesn't see people as rational, you know. So for better or for worse, um, the kind of the Gary Becker model at least sees people as rational agents. Um, when they're if making slightly, all of these decisions, if slightly reduced, if, um, um, yeah. if, going if, going into the marriage can, market as can, a rational can, agent and can I, can all I, that sort of thing. Sorry, can I, I just wonder if we could like bring us on to um, to the question specifically of human capital because I think that's such a brilliant bit and opens up this vista onto what is actually biopolitics in one really quick move, well, go on or, then. Go or on at least then. it's visible. And I was like, oh wow, okay, this is how you know he gets from here, from neoliberalism to there. And so, I mean, he starts take us, off- Take us to the vista. Well, exactly. <laughs> I'll, I'll take you to the precipice, um, but I won't push <laughs> okay. you over. You can you can jump yourself. Uh, the idea is, you know, he, in the reading of both a kind of Marxist understanding of labor as well, and, and his antecedents and kind of classical economics, uh, especially David Ricardo, um, looking at basically labor in abstraction from above and being able to be a measurable quantity, right, specifically in time. And they go, no, let's look at the neoliberals propose that you look at things from the other way around, from the point of the producing subject. And they go, well, you know, the producing subject has all these different sorts of abilities and knowledge and, uh, you know, even biological, ben um, biological, you know, inheritances that they might be able to mobilize. And so, you know, it's ridiculous to reduce labor down to time. Um, because, you know, you, and especially you can almost imagine to whom this would appeal, let's say you're a well-paid professional and thinks, well, I've, I've invested in my education and I'm skilled and I'm really smart and I get paid a lot because I have all these skills. Um, you can't just reduce uh, my labor down to how many hours I've worked because I actually am far more productive and intelligent and irreplaceable. So there's a scarcity value than anyone else. Um, and therefore I should be remunerated and so on. And, you know, that shift of perspective opens up this whole idea of, of human capital. And then from there, it's not too far of a leap, because I already mentioned inherited qualities, to the kind of biological and how that's an element which suddenly comes in comes into this nexus um, of 
um, of economic rationality and the economization, I guess, of, of everything, of, of areas of life which were previously considered entirely non-economic, for example, um, marriage. For, well, actually, marriage isn't a good example because it was always often an economic element, but whatever it might be, friendship, for example. Um, yeah, friendship and- is an interesting one. I mean, I suppose, I mean, but so Foucault makes the case like it is, like he says, particularly if you think of French peasant life, he makes, you know, it's a really interesting kind of unexpected defense of the model. He says, if you think of French peasant life, you'll see that this is the way they actually behave and think in relation to each other. Um, I suppose yeah, you could but, say, well, you know, is, is it a good model then of modern kind of individuals who live in modern society as opposed to, you know, French 19th century peasant life? But but I, I said friendship because I think it's a, it's a good example where there, for example, having the right circle of friends and the right contacts um, might make you, you know, more ambitious, for example, or... Well, yeah, my, that, those are the negative risks for sure. But, um, but you know, yeah, anyway, they have the right acquaintances, the right contacts that they might give you business opportunities or that might make you, you know, more aware to possibilities. Or if you're, all your friends are successful, you'll have to try to keep up with them. So it'll give you that extra impulse, whatever it might be. Um, so that also becomes, you know, you're subject welcome. to, to I mean, competitive we economic best. compilation. We <laughs> um, anyway, so I, I think there you already, I think that shift is so clever to move to looking at labor subjectively and qualitatively f- away from abstract and quantitatively as, as it would be in, in kind of classical economics um, is really is really great and brings in the question of life. And then already, you know, you're already halfway there to biopolitics. Yeah, I guess, I mean, this, you know, this pushes us to this question then. So we've already mentioned, you know, that nudge kind of the nudge policies which were so important to framing um, the propaganda in the course of the lockdown in terms of trying to inculcate certain kinds of behaviors without the need for explicit persuasion, incentivizing people to behave in particular ways with masking and, um, you know, uh, mobility and um, uh, behaviors in kind of major urban centers and what have you. All of this stuff was based on not on you know kind of um the becker model right but based on behavioral models of human action which is to say irrational kind of subliminal um semi-conscious perhaps um at best so this takes us to the question then what is the connection between um neoliberalism and biopolitics well, I mean, so I think there's, first of all, that the element, the kind of subjective and qualitative element, and then he dis- he depicts this in a kind of different, uh, on in a different move, um, looking at the move from homo penalis to homo economicus, um, and specifically the way that crime is treated. And I mean, to, to cut a long story short, um, and I'm sure people have read it anyway, but, um, you know, crime becomes a question of supply and demand curves of incentives and costs. So it's like, well, to eliminate, eliminate all crime um, demands a huge amount of investment. And so it becomes a question of like what becomes most cost effective, what amount, how much crime should we tolerate? Um, and so it perceives then in, in doing so, he says that there's a similar move from the kind of abstract perspective to the perspective of the subject that occurs in the development of human capital thought 
um, that you have in, in kind of juridical and legal thinking, um, where they also turn towards the position of the subject, the subject who might commit crime. And, you know, that's anybody. There's no, as, as George already said, all sociology, anthropology, criminology, whatever is dispensed with, um, because everybody is a potential criminal. It's just a question of how much they can get away with. It's how much, you know, whether or whether you can bear the cost of punishment. Um, and so, you know, just as work is then not an, uh, work is no longer abstract labor measure, excuse me, just as work is no longer abstract labor measurable by time, um, but, uh, but a kind of qualitative question of human capital, um, you know, so the imposition of justice is no longer a sort of general um, and abstract one, but becomes increasingly potential to be individualized because, you know, you, um, for example, might be um, whatever, be, be really hard up and have been brutalized in life. And for you going to prison is maybe not so much of a punishment. Right, because um, you get fed and you're you've been in and out of prison before, so maybe it's not such a such a cost for you to bear. And so, therefore, you know everything becomes much more kind of individualized, and so you no longer have the disciplinary approach of trying to get people to behave because they think someone might be in the panopticon watching them, um, but becomes much more um, subject to individual kind of so, uh, you know. And, and he uses uh, just, I mean, just uh, yeah. Go on, go ahead. Well, it's I mean it's an interesting point, but I suppose it doesn't get us to. The, my question, I suppose, is more to do with the, the you know, how far um, what is ostensibly a book about or a lecture series about biopolitics gets us to understanding our contemporary kind of, um, well, but I, if I think, not the I think lockdown, then our contemporary milieu. But I think, like, that's, so, I think well, we're nearly there. Right. It's just just to finish off my 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 thought to to tie the tie the knot, as it were, um, is that you have this focus of both human capital and this more individualized kind of controlling approach to justice um, means that the state is then responsible for um, for kind of the management of life in a way that is always ultimately tied to questions of. Uh, supply and demand, cost and profit, and uh, effectively, you know, an economic view of life. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's obviously the 64,000 franc question. Um, but I, I mean, there's there's a few, there's a couple of phrases that I would, you know, draw out from what the Foucault uses, um, which I think do help us to kind of make this link a little bit. He says that liberalism is the condition of intelligibility of biopolitics. And you might think that's a typical Foucauldianism. Um, but actually, I think he's he the way he frames it is that it's about, you know, what are the so this is the second phrase is governmental practice. Like what are the things that are basically created as problems for governments to deal with? And this is exactly as Alex was saying, like it's the, the fact that individuals are able to be understood into in this very economic way, it means that the conditions of there's no longer that separation between the things that individual governments have to deal with in terms of problems and and individual so all these things like you know health hygiene birth rate life expectancy race like all of these things which you know previously were kind of something to do with the identity or whatever of the individual no now they're just kind of things that can be modeled or things that can be understood in in that economic context and they are therefore problems that um, governments are 
governmental practices is specifically designed to solve so i don't okay but if i may um yeah. so two points right so first of all though in response alex to what you were saying this was the left's criticism of governments though right at least in the uk was um when lockdown um when they were seeking to draw lockdown to an end it was mainly the left that was criticizing them and the particularly you know the, the radical left was saying oh they want to restart the economy because all they think about is profits and they're in bed with you know corporate capital whatever blah 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 right so this was the critique of the left from the left at the time was that the yeah. the end of lockdown was an attempt to restart neoliberalism and lockdown wasn't neoliberal but that's all, that's still accepting a cost benefit analysis. It's just that the wrong costs and wrong benefits are, yeah, are, are kind of put in instead of a well, defense I take, on basic freedom or whatever. No, I, okay, I take that point, George. But I mean, I think the point, you know, it's still that the point being that it was seen to be a worse, you know, kind of nor the restoration of normal life was seen to be the neoliberal move by the left in the context of the pandemic, and then in relation to what you were saying, George. Um, you know, I mean, but I mean, these are, you know, I mean, these are kind of these kind of aggregate questions, natality, um, uh, mortality, uh, you know, kind of what are the major kind of risk factors associated with certain kinds of diseases, behaviors, whatever. I mean, you know, it's not these aren't um, these aren't uh, these are genuine questions, how far they need, how far they are used to justify or legitimate certain kinds of political decisions is a separate question, but it's not as if they only exist by virtue of um, the state thinking about them or as if they can't be modelled. Well, right. and actually, and I I'm think not sure Foucault would agree. I, think I know he would Foucault say, wouldn't agree, but I mean, I'm asking, would, you know, well, this would, is would, criticism. Well, just, just, just to run through his argument, I think he would say that these problems are are completely inseparable from the political framework that has been dominant since the 18th century. So you have to understand liberalism to understand it and understand its developments to see what sorts of problems are problematized. Oh, I can't believe I said that. Which problems <laughs> no, are made, take, which things are made into problems, right? I take, the, I take that point, but I mean, I don't, it doesn't seem to me to be coherent. I mean, well, so but, but I think, but you know, it, it, and this is my view, this is not me trying to defend or, or, or argue through with, with Foucault. Um, I think this is ultimately the problem that, you know, you need some biopolitics. Biopolitics is kind of okay. Um, of course. You so know, you're you a Bratonite after all. Uh, um, no, but, you know, it, it ultimately the, we might, for example, take objection to, let's take the smoke smoking bans, right? Because I think that's a, like a kind of neat, neat example. Um, you know, the, the classical liberal position would just be laissez-faire, you know, you should be allowed to smoke. Um, or you might interpret smoking as such an offense to the person next to you that, um, you know, the state needs to come in and manage those relationships with the people. The kind of biopolitical response, of course, um, is... And, and neoliberal one is that, you know, the costs imposed on the health system are so great and that it'll take people then out of the labor force and they'll be sick for a long time. Actually, we know that's not true because smokers might die quickly. But anyway, leaving that fact aside, because this wasn't important to it, is that you need to ban smoking because it's for people's own good. And it's a, therefore a kind of management of life um, from the perspective of, a, of an economic view of, of, of society, yeah. even if it's not directly tied to production. Yeah. Okay, so I take that point. I mean, I suppose it goes to the But but, but you know, so so sorry, let me just because I the, to tie this back in because I don't think 
like I'm not, I wasn't in favor of the smoking bans. I kind of appreciate them, but I'm still against them or think, you know, they should be left up to different establishments to decide. Um, but that doesn't mean that certain questions of life are not, you know, and I'm with you here, Phil, where your question was leading, is that certain questions of life should be the object of government, of, of any government, I think. Um, the question is that, you know, society is important. And so they can't be treated in such an individualized fashion as a question of your own human capital, for instance, but, um, I think... but about a social good. And I think that's where the distinction would come uh, come come in, you know, between this kind of biopolitical approach, uh, which is individualized and uh, and something that we might defend on the basis of human flourishing. But I'm not sure biopolitics is individualized. Um, I mean, I think it because it's the point about thinking at the level of the population and its aggregates. So the point you made about the justifications for banning smoking, it's done precisely in this kind of um, economic kind of the question of freedom as a good that can't be kind of um, weighed up. You know, so simplistically, that is put to one side by the cost benefit analysis, right? When you start thinking about the risk of passive smoking, secondary smoking, um, the burden on the health system, what have you, you know, this is what justifies the alteration of everyone's behavior. Whether, you know, and you can oppose that and you can say, well, actually, like you say, um, you know, it do doesn't actually play so much of a burden on the health system, but that is already accepting the, that kind of framework. But I, but I think of the how to manage. The, problems. The, the clues so, in the word aggregate, though, right? Because an aggregate is is a is a is a, a bunch of individuals, right? So it's not social, which is a, which implies a thickness, which implies the relationships yeah, between sure. people. But just each I individual, agree. there's a risk to them, and then we just join them all up at, at the kind of populational level. Yeah. So I mean, I suppose what I'm getting at is think the, but I'm what I'm trying to get at, I guess, is more and not particularly effectively. But it's that the it's the biopolitical framing itself, which is problematic, right? That there are, um, I mean, obviously, by virtue of the nature of um, contemporary society, we implicate, you know, we're implicated and bound up in all sorts of ways um, that require collective management. Um, but the biopolitical framing of those questions is um, problematic, and it can come from either the right or the left. But there's no getting away from the fact that, um, you know, there is, uh, there are, you know, there are kind of those questions have to be thought of collectively. Um, yeah. And, you know, and like I at the level of the population, the question is how to do it. And this goes, I suppose, to the question of, um, which has always been hovering behind all of our debates and which we've been having, you know, we've been having them for a long time now about lockdown is the bio the biopolitics was it a manual or a critique and certainly like you know from the foucauldian kind of in the fact foucault was you know abandoned essentially by the left throughout the course of the pandemic and the lockdown indicated there was um you know the bad kind of a guilty conscience over the fact that they were refusing to or most of them at least were refusing to develop any kind of critical response to what seemed like a classic exemplar of um, Foucauldian deployment of power. Um, but nonetheless, it kind of raised that question of how far Foucault allowed for critique or whether it was, you know, a manual. And it, I mean, so Foucault certainly came from that kind of um, sense of kind of oppositional hostility to the status quo and was associated with the political left. Um, even though he was explicitly kind of rejected um, uh, French Stalinism and Marxism and was perhaps closest to French Maoism. But 
it was based on an explicit repudiation of Marxist politics. His, but nonetheless, you know, kind of, I think it's but, but libertarian at the very least. I think you know. Well, it remained. It had a kind of it. Yeah, it was certainly kind of part of a left libertarianism, particularly in its hostility to institutional forms of um, collective life, such as you know, um, mental hospitals, famously. So I what mean, I'm getting one, at, though, is yeah. the. So I just want to get at this point, mm -hmm. though. So about the you know critique or manual. The reason that it seems to be, I mean, this is my account anyway, the reason it seems to be so close to a manual is because it was never that critical to begin with. So, you know, it gives us kind yeah. of um, accounts of certain kinds of phenomena and it gives us useful labels, but when they're bound together in the theoretical framework that Foucault provides, um, there's no possibility of distinguishing critique from manual. And so it simply all kind of um, mel, you know, dissolves into the same um, kind of approach, and it all becomes simply strategizing about, you know, um, from various kinds of positions and tactics of how to present certain kinds of problems and solutions and how to respond to them. And so yeah, it really I mean, doesn't give any opposition. Yeah, I mean, I think that that was essentially the point that, that I was going to make, which is that I mean, I'd, when when you read these these lectures, it's it's not. The major thing that he's trying to do is to, to trace out these developments and and see how you know see how things prefigure and like and um, foreshadow other things and that's what one of the reasons why you know you read it from seventy eight seventy nine you're like wow this is like he's he's extremely good at doing that because he can see how you know how developments in you know political thinking come about. And you know he he was able to identify something um, that was only that many people thought was only just beginning already in quite a lot of detail and sophistication, but I don't think it really is a kind of here's and here's what to do about it. That's not his, you know, that's not what he's about. So when it comes to, to the lockdowns, I think there was the major failing of the Foucauldians was actually to say that this isn't completely continuous with what he's already identified in terms of biopolitics. It seems like everything that he says, particularly about American neoliberalism, that extension of, of the economic into the non-economic domain and all of these you know, things that Alex was talking about in terms of smoking bans, there's a definite continuity and Foucault traced all of this out. And so, you know, you don't, that, that kind of, and so I guess what I'm saying is that question of critique or handbook isn't really sort of the right one from a Foucauldian point of view, but I think it's more like what are the precursors and how is this a consistent development or a, or but a I think from or dis discontinuous one? But yeah, I mean, so I, I just think you are kind of looking in the wrong area if you're looking for like, does he talk but about think, resistance no, or opposition? No, but I agree. But I think at the Foucauldian viewpoint, like it's a meaningless question. That's true, but that tells you already what you need to know, right? Yeah, I the think the fact it, that it's a meaningless question from a Foucauldian point well, of view. Well, if you if you already knew the answer you. to the question, why did you ask it? Well, no, so, because uh, so anyway, it's, like it's the, trying I, to I, understand my, my, whether my, or not these terms are useful for us to provide a critique. So when we say, you know, this is biopolitics. So say like the, you know, the state's focus during the lockdown of um, protect, you know, kind of abandoning um, what makes kind of, you know, ideas of human flourishing, life, freedom, um, you know, pursuit of your private interests and values and whatever in just on the imperative of biological survival. You know, do we want to call that biopolitics or not? Do we want to kind of make it our own term? Do we want to use the Foucauldian term? Do we want to find a new term? I mean, this is, I suppose, what's at stake in having this discussion. 
So this is this is why I'm I'm not such a fan of it. And I think you're right in what you're hinting at, Phil, in terms of it suggesting it might not be that useful because it precisely might not be that critical. And also what George, you were saying as well, that you know, Foucault himself might reject the the criticism versus, you know, the, the critique versus manual um, sort of uh, setup. And I think the reason for that is that the biopolitics lends itself or, you know, the the using those tools of, of, of biopolitics as an intellectual, as an analytical tool, either lends you towards a sort of libertarian response, which is no, the state shouldn't do any of this, right, shouldn't seek to manage life, um, which might itself lend itself to a more tragic understanding, a kind of Weberian one, where we're all stuck in this trap, right, and so you can't really reject it, or it's impossible to do so, because power is everywhere, and power um, is somehow, it's almost incontestable, right, so then you don't really, that you don't, it's very hard to gain critical traction there. Um, or indeed, you turn yourself into an enthusiast and say, no, the state should just do biopolitics, but do it better, um, which seemed to be a little bit the yeah, sort George of Bratton, Bratton's case. Exactly, yeah. Not George Bratton, but anyway, yeah, Bratton, um, Bratton's a, a, a approach. And so ultimately, there's no question, I think, there about the collective power over life and, the, and society. I, somehow, you know, society doesn't really emerge. But even saying from collective that. power over life is already a Foucauldian framing because yeah. the point is like, you know, I mean, the notion that there is like, um, you know, that as if, um, uh, you know, as if these aren't social questions rather than simply questions of power. Um, yeah. And I, I think there's one other element. Which... social questions separate from questions of power. The, the, there's yeah I think that's right and and there's a, another element which connects to that and I want to bring in because George and I were I think debating this on a recent episode it might have been uh, Alpha Bonus Bonus um, but the question of about well, debating it without me was I not there you were there but it was between me and George um, the question of uh, abandoned elite yeah version anyway um, uh, it was a question of abandonment, right? Because um, George's response was, you know, my my understanding of neoliberalism in Britain has been one of very much social interventionism, right? The state intervening in your life and practicing a kind of biopolitics in many cases, and not so much abandonment. And I, you know, we were making the point that actually, they very much go hand in hand. This was actually in reference to the discussion of uh, a book, which a, a, a listener raised the neoliberal subject by David Chandler, um, and some other guy whose name I've forgotten. Um, and I you know I was saying that these things go hand in hand. And I think it's important to remember that because, for example, the discussion that Foucault raises about crime, you know, says, you know, the neoliberal approach is how much crime or what crime should be tolerated because there's a certain amount of crime which is not worth, um, you know, worth dealing with. So, for example, in the uh, peripheries of big cities in Brazil or the American ghetto or whatever, you can have crime because one, these people are not economically productive anyway. Um, they're kind of useless subjects who can be allowed to be killed. So again, there's a question of who has a say over life um, and that they can just be left to their own devices, right? Um, and so that element of a, of abandoned, you know, the, the sort of biopolitical lens or at least the critique of biopolitics um, as, you know, state interventionism misses out that element, I think, in some ways. So I, I'm not entirely sure that that would be a, a good lens. Now, I, maybe someone will come in and say that actually, no, the kind of Foucauldian approach would also be conscious of, um, you know, those spaces of abandonment uh, as well, where the state allows people to die or kills them with with police action, uh, just as much as, um, you know, the state telling you you shouldn't smoke or something because you become economically unproductive if you do that. Um, I don't know. Um, but but in any case, 
I, I, I think that, it, I don't know, for me, at least that points to some sort of limitation of that approach of biopolitics. And I think the way that, for example, that the uh, pandemic should be the pandemic response and especially the lockdown should be critiqued, should be critiqued on the fact that they weren't particularly effective and that they cross certain lines about what life should be about, that it reduced it to survivalism. Um, you know, and I think, and, and, you know, I think, and I think that you can say that without necessarily um, having to depend upon the whole Foucauldian apparatus. Yeah. I mean, I think effectiveness and, um, you know, I mean, I'd say more perhaps that they weren't warranted um, given the nature of the, what was kind of known about the threat posed by the virus fairly, fairly early on. Um, but I, that aside, um, you know, there's the bigger question, I suppose, because it's very clear we're not going to get away from, um, I mean, I suppose this is the other point, which I don't know how far this Foucault can really kind of speak to this, but I think it's in, um, in eras in which, you know, in the end of history era in particular, where ideological competition is diminished, that it by, you know, it seems to me that you would expect in that kind of era that you would see a greater focus on other claims or other kind of um, sources for making political claims and health um, and um, population behaviors would be one of them, right? So it seems to me, you know, kind of biopolitics is the imperative, you know, focusing life on human survival, um, fitness, health, uh, reproducibility, those kinds of questions belong especially to an era of neoliberalism, right? And this isn't so much drawn out in this lecture series, but it's implicit, I think. And so I guess that raises the question, how far is biopolitics part of the end of history and whether or not it can survive the end of the end of history? I mean, I guess we don't have, you know, it's, uh, I mean, obviously I'm not saying that we have a return of grand ideological jousts that would make, you know, that would um, push us out of um, sheer biological survival and give us something grander to focus our attention on. Um, that's not the case. And obviously if it were the case, we wouldn't have been through lockdown. Um, but anyway, it's, I suppose, um, something else to think about, about the context in which biopolitics is, um, possible and whether or not um, Foucault is able to grasp that. The most, Foucauldian theories. Yeah, yeah. No, I just think the most consistent, or at least on, on my reading of it, the most consistent Foucauldian in this in this sense is is Giorgio Agamben. His like description of all those things you were talking about, like health and yeah. um, survivalism as a tech a tech technical, technological sanitationist despotism and how science has become a religion and all of these sorts, you know, all of these things which are I think, you know, an extension of Foucault's um um arguments perhaps, but consistent with that method. I mean, but he was obviously not not flavor of the uh, of the month to put it yeah, euphemistically. And yeah. and so yeah, and so but he was a crank as well. I mean, you know, he said like you know, what's wrong said, with being a crank? Well, saying that Guantanamo Bay is like the Nazi camps is entirely disproportionate and shows the inability to actually make any meaningful criticism of Guantanamo, and then saying that you know the biometric. Um, biometric um, passports are the equivalent of being tattooed in Auschwitz, and which is why I'm not going to go to the US anymore. You know, this is a Gambon saying that, not me. Um, you know, that is 
that is the kind of pursuit of that left kind of Foucauldianism to the cranky extreme. Now, for, you know, for Gambon, you know, I doff my hat to a Gambon and he has my respect for being willing to kind of be a dissident during the hysteria of lockdown and to be critical. And techno sanitation, sanitationary despotism is a great kind of phrase, doesn't roll off the tongue. But, you know, he was criti critical of lockdown and, you know, he's worth saluting for that. But in terms of... Um, the political, you know, as a developed kind of political alternative, it's there's nothing there. Yeah, and I think it's that ultimate sort of libertarianism, which I think is most lacking. Um, and, you know, it, it's worth considering in reference to whether biopolitics sort of continues through the end of the end of history. Um, it's worth bringing in the kind of specter of uselessness, right, of, of useless populations, um, and not just kind of in the slums of Lagos, um, but that's uh, just but, the but bad, bad conscience of the podcaster talking, Alex. Uh, no, but in, <laughs> um, but you know, in, in kind of the richest Western societies as well, you know, another uh, yeah, like a, I said, a Gambian, a Gambian idea, Homo sacer, right? The 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 kind of subject who can be allowed to be killed. Um, maybe they won't be killed because you know, in richest societies, there's that sort of extermination that happens in some other places, but. Um, but you know, if it, they're effectively um, reduction to bare survival becomes it, it can and continues to be an important question. Not and I think one that will will outlast the end of history uh, because you can see it with, for example, proposals for UBI. You know, it's, it's there's no real kind of greater sense of life. You just become you just given some money to keep yourself alive, and you can purchase goods on the market. Um, and so I think you know I, I don't think it's going away either. It's not given us perhaps any definitive answers um, and I can't see, you know, I think, I mean, I think biopolitics um, is still a useful way to describe the kind of survivalist politics of the lockdown era, which I think, you know, will probably return in some form, not least with the climate emergency. So um, as far as that goes, I'm willing to use it, though, um, kind of hopefully, uh, at least I'll you know, do my best to excise it from all the kind of um, Foucauldian um, gloop that comes with the term. Um, but I guess we can leave it there because we will be returning to the question of climate emergency in the next session. Over to you, Alex, to tell us about it. Well, yeah, very much. Uh, that's the last one of these of, uh, you know, this section on emergency politics. And uh, we hope we'll maybe kind of draw out some bigger conclusions. We're very eager to hear what you thought of this one. Um, and we'll address your questions at uh, in on this episode in the next one. Um, and we will be discussing uh, Adam Tooze's piece um, on climate emergency, as well as the book by Andreas Mal. Uh, and so that's it from us for now. Catch you later. Bye bye.